Well, if you haven't done so already, if you haven't, uh, inside your program is a green and white message note sheet, and we use this every week a lot. And so if you're brand new, you may not know that, you want to take that out. And then uh, if you're ready to jump in, I'm going to pray uh, that God would just meet us during this time in his word. Amen? Let's pray. So Father, we're just excited to be here in your house and to be under your leadership. And Lord, you said that the, the Holy Spirit is our teacher, that he would lead us into all truth. And Lord, it's, uh, the last, last week, uh, kind of two weeks ago, when we talked about this topic in chapter 6. As today, we continue this important topic. It's such a huge topic in our life. Lord, we just recognize that we're, we're heading into sensitive territory, that we all have different life experiences. Uh, we've got different uh, experiences now, different backgrounds, different traumas. Uh, we just pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would be here and he would illumine uh, your word in a beautiful way that would bring healing and health and restoration and joy uh, to just such an important topic. And we pray this in your name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Well, our story starts today in a pastor's office. And uh, this young man has come in. He's not yet 30. Um, he's in his 20s. And his name is Phil. And he's not yet a follower of Jesus. Uh, but uh, he's been starting to attend, explore the, the Jesus way a little bit. And, uh, and so he's come today to talk to this pastor who's, who's kind of taught on this particular topic quite a bit. And he's, 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 he's facing a dilemma. And as he begins to share his story and his journey, he, he shares with his pastor that uh, Phil shares that, that, uh, that though he's not yet 30, that He's been very active sexually in his life. In fact, he's slept with over 100 women at this point in his life. And, um, but the challenge that he's experiencing um, is that he's found that as time has gone on, he's finding it harder and harder to connect uh, with each new woman that he's in relationship with. It's leaving him with a kind of a deep sense of uh, emptiness. And uh, as he shares his story, he says, it's, it's nothing about the women. It's not that they're not attractive or charming. It's not that they're not willing or passionate. There's something going on within him. And he says, one of the specific challenges that he's facing is that, that as he's entering into a new relationship with a new woman and they sleep together, he finds that his mind just keeps on playing old videotapes from previous encounters. And they're coming unbidden. It's not like he wants them, but they're getting in the way. He said sometimes it's getting so bad that he even forgets who he's sleeping with at the time. Well, today we are continuing a series that we've been in the last many months that's uh, called Christ, Culture, and the Cross. And for those who are brand new, and I know every week God's bringing new people, um, whether here or online, and uh, for those who are new, this is an in-depth study of, I think, one of the most important letters in the New Testament for our time. It's a letter from one of the leaders of the, the New Testament church. Uh, his name is Paul, or we call him the Apostle Paul. And he's writing to a group of Christ followers, uh, men and women that he actually led to Jesus about three years before uh, in the strategic Roman city uh, called Corinth in the southern uh, tip of Greece. And so we call this letter the letter of 1 Corinthians. And, um, and so the last few weeks, we've, we've entered into this second major section of the letter that starts at chapter 5, goes through chapter 7, where Paul is beginning to, to address a wide array of different issues, challenges, problems that have come up. And, and the root of all these problems is that after Paul and his team left, that this church, has, instead of continuing the following the way of Christ and his cross, they've increasingly been listening to the, the vision, the values the voices of their culture, and it's leading to all kinds of chaos and conflict in their church. And so today, as we continue that journey, the topic again, as it was last time I taught, is on sex again. And so if you were here a couple weeks ago, um, this is how Paul ended chapter 6, and then we took a one-week break for a special message, Ray did a great job last week to launch life groups, so now we're continuing. So Throughout this message, when I refer to last week or the last message, 
I'm kind of pretending that message didn't happen because these passages are so uh, interrelated to understand one another. So if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, let's go ahead and jump in and see what, the, see what Paul says here. There in your note sheet is a section called Christ, Culture, and the Cross, uh, Sex, and Marriage. And so if you were, you were here, let me set it up. If, uh, if you were here those two weeks ago when, when we wrapped up chapter 6, uh, Paul was addressing an issue that had, was arising in the church of Corinth where there were some that were uh, rising up and saying, you know, that after we come to Jesus, it doesn't really matter what we do with our bodies, and especially sexually, because what God really cares about is our souls. And, uh, and Paul said, no, no, that's completely wrong, that when you come to Jesus, if you're here, you remember this, that we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, our bodies actually become the temple of the Holy Spirit. So what we do with our bodies is extremely important. And so uh, for, for followers of Jesus, sexual purity is a non-negotiable, right? So that was the that was, uh, end of chapter 6. Now we're going to chapter 7. And, and there's, there's another group, apparently, that's rising up in Corinth, uh, kind of flowing out of a different strain of Greek philosophy that's popular in their culture that's saying the opposite thing. So, so if you've studied world religions, uh, it doesn't matter if it's Christianity, you know, you, you know there's, in many religions there's this kind of strain of what we call asceticism, that the body is evil and therefore to be spiritually mature or spiritual, we need to deny the body any pleasures. And that was part of a Greek, certain strains of Greek philosophy. And that, that seems to be kind of rising up in the church. And so some are saying in the church that, hey, uh, after we come to Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit, we should avoid all, all sexual activity, uh, even in marriage, if you're married. It's much better to be single than married because you don't have to deal with that kind of defiling process of sexuality. And if you are married, you should really abstain from sex. It's like a way to be more spiritual. And so Paul is going to be addressing in chapter 7 these issues of uh, sex, marriage, uh, divorce, because some of them seem to be saying maybe you should even get divorced. That's even a better way to be more spiritual, to be single again, uh, especially if you're married to a pagan, and then singleness, right? And so we're going to be spending some time in that the next few weeks. And so today, we're just covering the first uh, seven verses. And so if you have your uh, Bibles open, you have your apps Let's go ahead and open up and we'll jump in. Now, notice how this starts. Um, Paul says, for the matters that you what? What's he say next? Okay, let's try it again. <laughs> let's get like that was like take one. All right, let's do it. For the matters you? Good, thank you. So, yeah, so I want you to catch this. We're entering into a new section of the letter here. Up to this point, the first six chapters, Paul has been addressing issues, challenges, chaos, conflict that is arising from issues he's heard about from visitors from the church of Corinth who have traveled 350 miles across the Aegean Sea to where he's staying at Ephesus. And, and so uh, he's been addressing these, these issues that have been personally reported. But what we're learning now, and we'll see in the coming chapters, is that the church had recently written an official letter asking him questions about how to follow Jesus in the midst of this pagan culture. And the first issue that he's going to address is this issue of sex, marriage, divorce, singleness. And so he says, so about the, for the matters that you wrote about, and he's going to start here by quoting one of the sound bites that's going around in Corinth. So if you heard last time, you remember that he was quoting a couple sound bites about sexuality that were going around. And he said, what he said is, yes, there's some truth to that, but we need to qualify that truth. We need to correct that truth for it to be actually accurate. He's going to do the exact same thing today. So he's going to quote his soundbite. Uh, you'll notice it's in quotes, and then he's going to address it and kind of correct it. So he says, so the, for the matters you wrote about, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So this seems to be the teaching that's going around, that when you come to Jesus, uh, we're now spiritual people, and so we should be denying the body, and so it's good for a man who's really seeking the Lord not to have sexual relations with a woman. And what Paul's going to say is, hey, there is some truth to that. There's some value in being single, to live a single life. We'll come back to that a little bit later. But he says, but we need to correct that. That's true at times, not always true. And so he says next, he says, it's good for a man not to have 
sexual relations with a woman. He says, but since sexual immorality, and catch this, in the Greek, it actually says sexual immoralities, okay? And he says, so there's, since sexual immoralities are going on, are occurring, notice in present tense, he says, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. So he says, yeah, there's limited truth to that. He'll talk about it later, but he says, hey, if you're married, um, you need to be having an active, strong sex life. He says, because uh, the opposite of it makes you, you know, it doesn't make you more spiritual to abstain. It makes you more vulnerable to abstain. And so he goes on and he says, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Now it's interesting in the Greek, what it actually says is the husband should pay her what is due. I love that. And the wife should pay her husband too, right? And we'll talk more about this later. Now, hey, quick, quick, side, quick, quick sidebar here. <laughs> quick, quick sidebar here. This is super important. Is that I realize today as we enter into this discussion about sexuality, we all come with different backgrounds. We've got different histories, different traumas, different things. It can be very triggering, right? And I, I want to say this, that throughout church history, there have always been Husbands who have abused this verse and who have said to their wives, hey, this is my right, even to the extent sometimes of raping their wives and saying, hey, this is what, this is what the Bible says. And we'll talk about this more later, but you know, when we enter into marriage, we never leave the core teaching of Jesus that we're to love one another as he has loved us. And so... Um, and so that, that, takes, that, that takes precedence in all of our marriage, but especially in the bedroom as well. Right? So we'll come back to that. Now, number uh, uh, verse four. So what he says next is really revolutionary. Remember, in the Roman world, the, in Roman culture, the, the father was like the god of the family. He had complete authority over his family. Um, and so what he says next, they would have said, yeah, that's right. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. And they would have said, yep, that's, that's true. But the, what he says next is revolutionary, super countercultural. He says, in the same way, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body. But now that you're in Jesus, the way we look at our marriage, the way we look at each other's bodies is completely different but yields it to his wife. So when we, when we get married, we become one flesh and no longer two, but one. And there's, there's kind of limited authority we have over our bodies that I belong to you, you belong to me. We belong to each other. It's a beautiful, um, a beautiful gift that God gives us. And so, um, so Paul, he, he says, so, so do not deprive each other. Remember in verse three, he said, so pay each other what you owe. This in the Greek is like, don't rob each other, right? Don't defraud each other. Don't rip each other off. So do not rip each other off, you know, by not having consistent uh, good sex life. Do not deprive each other, except there is an exception, by mutual consent, like if you both agree to this, and for a time, right? Uh, there's a, a season um, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. So we're familiar with the concept this concept of fasting, aren't we? That, that, uh, when, when, that we often know that, hey, food is a good thing. Food is a gift of God. It's to be enjoyed. We enjoy good food. I like good food. You like good food. We can sometimes tell them we like it too much. So we all like good food, right? And, and that's a good thing. In the same way, sex is a good thing, as we'll see. But Paul says in the same way that we would fast from food sometimes to seek the Lord, that in the same way, sometimes he said, if you want to fast from your normal sexual relationship in order to pursue the Lord, that's fine. He says, um, but um, it needs to be by mutual consent. You need to kind of agree to this, and it needs to be for a limited time. And, uh, and then he says, I say this uh, as a concession, not as a command, which could refer to the previous verse or the following verse. We're not really sure, but, but very likely he's saying, hey, this, this concession that you have kind of an exception um, he said, I'm not saying you have to do this. It's just it's an option, you know, like, like fasting from food. And then Paul says, you know, honestly, I wish that all of you were as I am. So Paul is single. We don't know if he was always single uh, or he's just 
currently single, like for example, maybe his wife died. There's arguments on both sides of this, we don't really know. Um, but Paul loved being single, as we'll see later in the letter, because as an apostle, it gave him, not because it made him more spiritual, but because it gave him more freedom, right? And so when you're single, um, uh, not so much true if like you're a single mom, but like if you're, or a single dad, but if you're like single, um, then you have more freedom, you know, to, with your schedule. And so Paul could serve Jesus more, especially as an apostle on the road. You think of all the persecution, not supporting a family, not worrying about his wife and kids, things like that. And so he, he really, and so he said, hey, so, you know, if, if God's calling you to that for the kingdom, that's a beautiful thing. I would love that if more of you felt called that way. But look what he says next. He says, um, but, he said, I wish that all of you were as envy. He said, but each of you has your own what? gift. And that's that word in Greek that we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul talks about the supernatural gifts of the Spirit. And he says, you know, we all have our own gift. And he said, I recognize that. Some of us are, are called to a life of singleness, and some of us aren't. And, and so I kind of wish you were all like me, but I get it. You know, we all have our different calling. And um, he says, so one has this gift, right, the gift of marriage. Another has that gift, the gift of singleness. So that's the passage, right? Now, what I want to do today is take some time and, and, and kind of build on what we talked about last time about human sexuality. What does it look like to follow Jesus in the midst of a crazy culture today? What does it look like to follow Jesus in the realm of our sexuality, uh, not listening to the voices of culture, but to listen to the voice of Jesus uh, and his kingdom? And so uh, what I want to do is I want to start with two big picture principles, kind of lay lay some of God's vision for sexuality out, and then uh, come back at the end and ask two important questions that flow out of those two principles. So here we go. So there in your note sheet, Christ, culture, and the cross, sex in the city, part two. And so here we go. The, the first one, some of you are going to love this, some not so much, but it goes like this. Sex is a God thing, right? Sex is a God thing. So if you can't, if you can't bring yourself to write that, just say it's a good thing, but it's actually better than a good thing. It's a God thing. And this is what we see throughout the Bible. Now, let me catch, let me say it. Throughout church history, there have been those theologians, pastors, uh, some of them very famous, um, who have said this is not true. They've said that, that sex is a bad thing. It's a product, kind of result of the fall. And so even if you're married, uh, you should abstain from sexuality except for procreation and to, to engage in sexual relationship just for the pleasure of is actually sinful, right? So there's always been those voices throughout church history and you may have been raised in a church like that. You may have been brought up in that, but, but what Paul is building on here is like, no, no, no. Uh, the Christian worldview is exactly the opposite. The Christian worldview is that God created all things, it was very good. And one of those things he created is human sexuality. You may not know this, but uh, uh, that there are many parts of the human body, that kind of sexual part of the anatomy, there's many parts that uh, the doctors, uh, 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 scientists will tell us that they have no other purpose than to create pleasure. Right? So God has designed us like uh, Psalm 130, fearfully and wonderfully made, that, that sex is a good thing. And this is a consistent teaching of the Bible. And of course, that's what, that's what Paul's building on here. He's building on this uh, Christian worldview of creation. And so um, there, there are many passages in the Bible that teach this. And if we had more time, we'd do a deep dive into this. But I just want to give you one that certainly makes the point. So some of you are familiar with this book. Others are not, but one of the greatest books on, uh, in the Bible about romantic love, sexual love, uh, is the Old Testament book. It's called The Song of Solomon. And so it's really a series of love poems uh, kind of celebrating the beauty of human love and human sexuality in marriage. And so in these poems, uh, the bride is uh, speaking of her, uh, of her groom. The groom is speaking of his bride. But just to give you an example, um, in chapter 7, uh, this is uh, the, the young man speaking to his bride, and he says, how beautiful you are and how pleasing, my love, with, uh, with your delights. He says, your stature is like that of a palm. So think of a straight palm, like just, you know, great, great posture. Your stature is like that of a palm, and your breasts are like clusters of fruit 
And so he says, I love this guy. He says, so I said, I will climb the palm tree and take hold of your fruit, right? <laughs> now, isn't that awesome? Now, some of you men I know have been really trying to learn how to memorize scripture. <laughs> and you've been struggling with this and sometimes you just need like one good verse. So I would suggest maybe you write this out, put it on the mirror, you know, where you, you shave or whatever. Maybe put it on your wife's mirror. She could like memorize it as well. And you say, and it gets more erotic as we go. So he says, and may, may your breasts be like clusters of grapes on the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples, your mouth like the best wine. So he just compared her breasts to grapes and wine. And then look how she responds. May the wine go straight to my beloved, flowing gently over lips and teeth. Right? I'm not even going to explain that. All right. <laughs> this is beautiful picture of, of romantic love, of sexual love. This couple that's just finding great delight. And this is so important because honestly, I think for many of us, for whatever reason, that even if we're married, it's like when we're making love to our spouse, there's almost a sense of, I bet God's covering his eyes, you know? And instead of that, a God of creation, this is something he's created and he's delighting when a husband and wife are finding joy and laughter and freedom and passion and desire and intimacy in relationships. Like, there's my kids. They're having a great time. This is beautiful, right? Okay, so, that, so this is the, kind of the biblical view of sexuality that Paul is building on in this passage. He says, no, no, no. It's not more spiritual to not have sex in marriage. It's actually, it just makes you less spiritual. You're not really following Jesus. You're not really following kind of his vision for your uh, marriage. Um, and it's just making you more vulnerable. So I love uh, what uh, C.S. Lewis writes about this. Of course, one of my favorite authors. And um, he, in his book, Mere Christianity, of course, if, for those of you who are new at this, C.S. Lewis was you know, the Oxford and Cambridge Don. Uh, his specialty was uh, medieval Renaissance literature. And, uh, and he came to Christ late in life. And so he wrote this book called Mere Christianity. And in his chapter on sex and kind of a Christian view of sex, he said the old Christian teachers, and he's kind of picking and choosing here because some of the old Christian teachers were very anti-sex, but he says the old Christian teachers said that if man had never fallen, sexual pleasure, instead of being less than it is now, would actually have been greater. I think he's absolutely right. He said, I know some, and I love this, I, I know some muddle-headed Christians have talked as if Christianity thought that sex or the body or pleasure were bad in themselves, but they were wrong. Christianity is almost the only one of the great religions that thoroughly approves of the body. Christianity has glorified marriage more than any other religion, and nearly all the greatest love poetry in the world, remember, that's the specialty, uh, has been produced by Christians. So if anyone says that sex in itself is bad, Christianity contradicts him at once. So that's where we, we need to start, right? That what we're seeing in this passage as Paul uh, discusses all these issues in chapter 7. He's laying the foundation. Sex is a good thing. Number two, the second principle is that sex is like fire. And you say, well, what do you mean? And I'll get there in just a second. But let's step back to, let's step back to the end of chapter 6, the last time I was up here teaching in this series. And so um, in, in chapter 6, what, what we learned is that sex is a good thing. Remember that we learned it was designed to unite one man to one woman uh, for a lifetime of love and commitment. That's what we call marriage. Um, and then to create this beautiful, um, this beautiful safe place for children to be born and raised and thrive. I, I, that, that's the vision. We also learned on the flip side that that's one of the reasons why sex outside of marriage is so dangerous because it still bonds and when that relationship ends, there's sort of a, a tearing, a ripping of souls that leads to leanness of soul. Remember Phil in the opening story. Right? We'll come back to him later. 
And so remember what Paul said. He said sexual sin is actually a unique sin. It's a sin against your own body, against your own self. It's, it's destructive, right? And so, so this is what we've seen. That it's, it's God's gift, but um, it's in the, in the wrong place. It can be very destructive. And so that's what I mean when I say sex is like fire. Uh, I, I don't know if any of you... Um, uh, have ever been outside on a, just a freezing cold, especially if like there's snow involved, you know, like snow and cold. I remember when, you know, when Lynn and I were young, we just got married, we moved back to the Midwest uh, in order for me to finish my education. Um, and, uh, and so um, I, I remember just thinking, just shocked that people actually live this way. <laughs> like I remember seriously thinking, do they just not know And then there was so much for us to learn. We were very poor. We were living in student housing. Had to, we didn't have a garage. Had to put our house outside. Couldn't attach an electric cord because we're in a second, you know, to, to in, keep the engine warm because we had a second story window. It just couldn't work. That way they wouldn't allow that. I remember very early on that first winter we were there, I came out and went to go to work one day and I drove about 100 yards and the car just stopped and I couldn't figure out what was going on. I had to call a tow truck. We didn't have the money for that. Called the tow truck and he said, hey, did you put, uh, he said, well, did you put antifreeze in your gas tank? <laughs> like, no, I'm not an idiot. I put the antifreeze in the radiator. He's like, well, back here, where are you from? <laughs> okay, well, back here, if you leave your car out at night, you have to put antifreeze in your gas tank every time you get gas, otherwise your gas line will freeze. And that's what's happened to you. And so we're gonna charge you all this money to take you to my garage and let your car sit there overnight for it to warm up and then you'll be fine. And I'm like, who lives like this, right? <laughs> like, I, are you kidding, right? But if you've ever been outside on a cold, snowy, winter night and you're just freezing you hardly feel your fingers anymore and you come into a room with a large roaring fire in the fireplace man there's nothing better is it just to go sometimes it actually kind of hurts a little at first right because your your hands are thawing but it's just so good you just want to stand next to that fire sit a little closer a little you just kind of regulate the heat you let your it's such a beautiful thing you know, but if you turn your back on that fire, maybe move the screen, throw in another log, you forget, you walk away, and all of a sudden a spark jumps out. That same fire that was such a warming, such a beautiful thing, can very quickly burn your whole house down. And this is what I mean when I say sex is like fire. It's powerful. It has the power to unite, it has the power to bond, it has the power to destroy. And I shared this with you last, the last time I spoke, uh, this quote from one of my iProfs. I was really just so fortunate to study under him in my doctoral program. But his name is Dr. Archibald Hart, and he says, given its intensity, our sex drive can lay waste to everything in its path, including honor and reputation, families, virginity, fidelity, chastity, good intentions, lifelong promises, and spiritual commitment. So, so sex in the right place, in the fireplace, beautiful, outside, can burn our lives down. Um, and this is true, and you know, in our culture today, it's either, it, you know, it's all the way to where, no, no, it's just like sort of brushing your teeth, you know, it's, this is nothing, you know, just, just go on to Tinder and it's a different person every night, it's no big deal, it's just natural. It go from there, or other people will say, well, no, it's, it's more important than that, but it's just as long as you really love one another. But the reality is, it's destructive, you know, like Phil, like Phil uh, found out. And, uh, you know, here at Rocky Peak, we use this uh, premarital material from these two really brilliant um, Christian psychologist, Dr. Les and Leslie Parrott, in our state, it's called Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts. And in their book on relationships, they talk about this, and they said, you know, it's tempting to believe that love sanctifies sex. You know, as long as we love one another. He said, but that's a fallacy. Sex, even in the context of a caring and loving relationship, will forever change the dynamics of the relationship. And we know that's true, right? It's like, 
when you sleep with someone, that relationship is never the same. It may be changed in a wide variety of ways, but it's never the same. As the sexual intercourse draws us into the profound mystery of a one flesh reality, you know, the Bible talks about, it's meant to unite and bond. We've talked about that in a deep and wonderful way, but there's a hitch. Sex outside the lifelong covenant of permanence and fidelity, you know, in other words, marriage, sets up expectations and creates needs that almost always dismantle the relationship. And so these two principles that we've seen in chapter 6 and chapter 7, incredible gift, but also dangerous, right? So, so, um, so use, use as intended, right? So, now, so these two principles now lead to two important questions. I'm trying to get really practical here. And again, this may make some of us at times uncomfortable, but just hang with me as we go through. Hopefully that that, that will be, get better if, if you're one of those people, but... The first question, especially for those of us who are married or Cassius, or those of us who hope one day to be married. Uh, my working with single adults, my experiences, most single adults, not all, most single adults feel like if God brings the right person, the right time, the right way, I'd like to get married, right? And so whether you're single, this is especially for those of us who are married, but if you're, for those of you who one day would like to be married, here's the question, is sex a priority? Like in your marriage, right, we're talking in the marriage now, is sex a priority? So what we've seen today is that Paul says part of following Jesus, and bear with me here, we'll get to all the what ifs, but, but what he says, if, if, you're, if you're married, part of following Jesus is nurturing and building a strong sex life in your marriage. It's not more spiritual abstain, it's it's more spiritual to engage. And he says, in fact, if you don't, you're leaving yourself open, either you or your spouse, to, to, vulnerable, to, to be uh, kind of a target of Satan. It's, you're going to make yourself more vulnerable. Now, my guess is, is that in a room this size, this many people, um, those watching online, that there's different reactions to this, right? For some of us in this room, this is like, it's just like great news. It's like, it's something we celebrate. It's like, that's so true. It's what we experience in our marriage. Our, uh, you know, you, you may be saying like, we, that for us, sex, it's, it's fun, it's playful, it's serious, it's intense, it's passionate, it's wild. It's all over these things, but it's very nurturing and such, such a gift in our marriage. And if so, that's just a beautiful thing. And it's like, that's great. You just continue to go for it. Yeah, that's fantastic, right? But my hunch is, is that in a room this size or an audience this size, that for many of us, we would say that's not the case in our marriage. And actually, this teaching that we need to make sex a priority is very threatening or it's unsettling or it's frightening or it's frustrating. Um, and so I want to address this. All right? I want to address this. So what do we do if that's where we find ourselves? And I think the first thing I would say, and this is just so important, is that when our sexual relationship is not going well, we need to take that seriously. We need to see that as a warning light on the dashboard of our marriage that something is wrong. Now, what is wrong, we're going to talk about it. It could be a wide variety of it, but we need to, it's like you're driving along. Like Lynn and I were driving back from Colorado recently and all of a sudden, this, the cruise control leaves, and there's a drop of power, and this light comes on, consult owner's manual. <laughs> but we didn't have the owner's manual, and we were outside of cell coverage. Um, and when that happens, the idea is the manufacturer is telling you, hey, you need to pay attention to this. Something is wrong, and this could go bad for you. So check your manual. I won't tell you how this story ended. Um, but this, when, when sex is not going well in our relationship, this is, needs to be our response. I need to check under the hood. I, I need to figure out what's going on. This, this is something's wrong. It's serious. We need to take it seriously. Now, what's wrong could really vary. Like, I'm going to give you five different options of what's wrong. And I'm sure there's more, but we can't be here all day. 
So number one, I think the first, the, first, uh, the first thing that the light could indicate is that bad sex equals bad marriage. Now, not always, but often what you find is it's, it's very difficult to have a great sex life in a bad marriage. Sometimes that can happen for a short time, especially when newly married. It's like you just put all differences aside and let's just go for it and it goes fine, you know. But... But over the long haul, it's very unusual to be a couple that we have a horrible marriage, but wow, sex is amazing. And it just doesn't happen, right? And, and so when that dashboard light goes on, we need to, we need to say, see that as a warning light. It's like, how healthy is our marriage overall? Because here's the thing. Like, often you'll talk to a man, and, and for example, he, he's very harsh with his wife. And he is very insensitive to her needs. And there's very little emotional connection going on in the marriage. And yet he responds to her, he expects her to be frisky in the bedroom. It's like she's not in that spot. I think especially for women, sex is more driven, as much driven by relationship as just the physical, right? And so when the relationship's bad, that makes it hard to respond, right? On the flip side, it's similar but, but different with men. It's like that you'll, you'll meet a couple and the wife is very critical of her husband. And she's, she's putting him down in public. She's not responding to his leadership in the, mari- in the marriage. And in many ways, she's emasculating him. And then wondering why he's not responsive. So often, when that light goes on, the first thing we need to check, and we'll talk about this more in a few minutes, the first thing is, How's our marriage? Because sex isn't just about technique. It's about relationship. And number two, the second, I think the second potential is that we have kind of a wrong paradigm. That for some of us, maybe we've grown up in houses, whether it's Christian or non-Christian, where sex is really seen as a negative thing. Uh, It's just what men want, it's why they get at you, or... Uh, it's kind of a, maybe a Christian home, but it's kind of like, uh, it's like not talked about. This is not a positive thing. And so for some of us, we really need, catch this, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And we really need to go back to Scripture, maybe do some reading of Christian uh, counselors and all on this topic to kind of reframe the way our kind of whole vision for sexuality. I think a third a third uh, option th- is sometimes that the light goes on because of either trauma, sexual trauma in the past for both men and women, or sexual baggage. So if you've, if you've been a victim of sexual violence, molestation, rape, that this very well may, may be, be making it difficult for you to respond today. Again, both men and women. And and uh, sometimes we need to explore that and get some counseling with that and work through that, that they're very serious issues that make it hard. On the, the baggage side, remember Phil? You know, imagine that Phil gets married now. Do you think his problems with old tapes running are going to magically go away? No, no, he's bringing baggage, isn't he? He's bringing a hundred women to his marriage bed. And that's something that's going to have to be worked through and prayed through. And some of those relationships, kind of, those soul ties kind of broken, right, in order to more fully engage. A uh, fourth thing, it can just be life's busyness. It's so common, young marriage, uh, it's like maybe you're both working, you've got two young kids, and you're both exhausted or stressed out. And it makes it very difficult to be interested or respond sexually. And then a fifth one is just health issues. It could be male or female, but you have, you're having a problem responding. Your body is just not cooperating. Right? And here's what I want you to catch. These are just five examples. I'm sure there are others that we could talk about. But what I want you to catch is when that, when that warning light on the dashboard of your marriage comes on, that our sex life is not going well, that we need to take it seriously because it, it, it's important. It's part of God's vision for our life as followers of Jesus. And 
and he wants to restore and heal that. Um, and, and then this is also when we, we protect our purity. But I want to go back to that very first, first uh, cause. Remember I said that there can be many causes, and the first one is just, it's just uh, bad sex is an indication often of a bad marriage. And, and here's where I challenge. I think that this is a place where we need to begin. As we, we need to begin. Now, you may say, no, that's not it at all. We're getting along great. Okay, great. But for many people, we're slow to connect the two. And we want to blame it on other things. But here's what I want to challenge you. As followers of Jesus, our first commandment is to love God with all our heart. Our second command is what? We love our neighbor as ourselves, or Jesus would love, love one another as I've loved you. And here's the thing. What I find is we often say that, but we don't practice that in our marriage. And so, you know, in Philippians 2, it says, what does this look like in real life? He says, it's putting the needs and interests of one another ahead of our own. And I can tell you, where you have a marriage where both partners are trying to outserve one another in love, that's usually gonna be a strong marriage. And out of that, more often than not, it's gonna to lead to a strong sexual relationship. And this, this whole approach of serving one another in love, laying down our life, uh, it's so important, catch this, not just in the general area of marriage, but it's especially true in the bedroom or wherever your favorite room is. <laughs> um, so in Tim Keller, in his book, Meaning of Marriage, it's a beautiful quote. He says, you know, each partner in marriage is to be most concerned, catch this, not with getting sexual pleasure, but with what? Giving, Giving it. Now, how countercultural is that, right? But this is, this, is, this is the message of the cross, right? When we talk about following Christ in his cross, what did he, he loved us by sacrificing himself for us. When we live out a cruciform life, it leads to a life of service wherever we go, including in our sexual relationship and marriage. He says, in short, the greatest sexual pleasure should be the pleasure of seeing your spouse getting pleasure. And when you get to the place where giving arousal is the most arousing thing, you're practicing this principle. And this concept also has implications for the typical problem that many couples experience. If this is you, it's, you're not an, alone in their marital relationship, namely that one person wants sex more than the other. But if your main purpose in sex is giving pleasure, not getting pleasure, then a person who doesn't have much of a sex drive physically can give to the other person as a gift. And this is a legitimate act of love and um, for the person who's receiving that love shouldn't be denigrated by saying, oh, no, no, unless you're going to be all passionate, don't do it. Do it as a gift. So, so the, the first, I think, so Paul says, hey, step, step one here is that you're not more spiritual for, for not pursuing that. You're actually less spiritual. You're making yourself more vulnerable, so make it a priority. And I'd say, if, if this is a challenge for you in your marriage, just know a couple things. You're, you're not on your own. This is not uncommon at all. And uh, I put some resources there that may be a great place to start. Obviously, counseling can help with this and so on, but, but I put uh, several books there that might be helpful. The first is one I've actually read and it's really good. The others are there by two Christian counselors that I consulted with for this message and say, uh, many of the books that I've read in this were kind of older. And so I said, you know, what are some contemporary books that you recommend that are super helpful? And the, the, they, these are both uh, Christian counselors, marriage therapists that go to our church. And they said, well, these are the books. And so I put those there for you as well. Okay. Now, number two, the second question then is, are you protecting your purity? So Paul has talked a lot about this the last couple of weeks, last couple of messages. Remember in chapter six, he said, if you're single, the way you protect your purity is by fleeing sexual immorality. You make no, no, 
no, you know, you no allowances for this. You, you embrace this new paradigm of Jesus that what we do with our bodies is really important. Your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so we're going we're to flee. And so protect your purity. But, but then today, Paul says, one of the ways if you're married, you protect your purity is by pursuing a strong uh, sex life. But here's what I want you to catch. As we learned a couple weeks ago, we talk about protecting our purity. It's not just a matter of protecting our bodies. It's a matter of protecting our minds. And we talked about this some um, uh, a couple weeks ago, but I, I want to come back and build on this a little bit more. I didn't have really time to go into great detail, but uh, I want to build on a little bit more. And so, so last time we were together and we talked about this, I talked about the danger of, of not guarding our mind in the areas of pornography, um, cyber sex, which is becoming uh, much more of an issue, um, and, uh, and, and, uh, and just not protecting our minds in, in, these, uh, in these areas. Um, and so we talked about this, that, that when we engage in pornography, and again, remember my, my goal here is not to shame, the goal is to help lay a path forward to freedom, right? So if this is a problem for you, the pro- I mean, we talked about this last time, that one of the problems of pornography, cyber sex, is it, it, it kind of feeds this kind of lower fleshly part of our nature that wants to reduce human beings to a body. And, and what it does is it trains us to look at others just physically. And the more we do that, we begin to lose our capacity for true relationship and intimacy because of the way we're objectifying others. And so last time I said, hey, pornography, cyber, this is like, like battery acid to the soul. That when we participate, we are killing our soul. We're diminishing our soul. We're losing capacity to love as Jesus loved. But Another danger, and this is what I want to highlight today, and we see it in Phil's story, is this, this danger of comparison. This danger of these unwanted pictures and images that flood into our minds and really create unrealistic expectations for our sexual experience and rob us of the ability to be satisfied with a real person in a real relationship. And often, even it can, can become so bad that like Phil, you, you, lose, you lose track of who you're with, or it's, you're not even with your spouse that these images are coming in. You're actually making love to images, not a real person. And this is a huge problem, not only for us, the person that's engaging. But what I've found, and as a pastor, I've seen this so many times over the years, is that when your boyfriend or your girlfriend, right, if you're not married yet, you're in premarital, whatever, and they discover that this is an issue. If you're married, you find out that your spouse is engaging in this sort of pursuit. It can be devastating. And I'm telling you, it feels at a core level, it feels like a rejection. It feels like a betrayal. And it often introduces a deep sense of inadequacy. How could I ever please you? Why was I not enough? That can be devastating to real relationships, right? to a real marriage. And so the question is, are we protecting our bodies? Yes, right? If we're single, flee. If we're married, make sex a priority. Figure this out. But also, are we protecting our minds? And if this is something that you're struggling with, either body or mind, I just want to remind you of some of the resources that we have, and of course there's many others. But I wanna remind you that we have a beautiful ministry here on Thursday night, it's called Celebrate Recovery, and that one of, the, one of the groups focuses on is sexual purity, whether it's a body or mind, or both. 
Um, I want to remind you that for those of you who are single, that this series that I did a long time ago that's on our website called Sex and the Single Life, that really helps kind of, kind of lay out God's vision for sexuality, the high cost of sexual immorality, how you set your standards, how you keep your standards, super practical. And then for those of you who are really struggling maybe with pornography, just a couple resources I put there again, a couple books recommended to, to me by a counselor in our church that specializes in this area uh, by Douglas Weiss. Of course, there's many others that are great resources by Christian writers that help us understand the, the dynamics of porno- pornography, the dopamine hits that we get, the addiction that comes from that, the neural pathways that are formed physiologically, spiritually, and so on. But what I want to encourage you, if if this is something that you're struggling with, that I encourage you, don't struggle alone. We, We all struggle in this area at some level, at some point in our life, and don't struggle alone. Get with a brother or sister. Find a solution. Seek a path. Ask the Holy Spirit, what's your path out? Because I can tell you, when this area of our life is messed up, it messes with our life. And the longer we don't deal with it, the more it controls us, and we lose the freedom that Jesus died to give us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. So, Father, we're so thankful for the beauty of your word and the practicality that you don't leave topics like this on the side and just say, hey, figure this out on your own, that your word just speaks with such power to this Christian worldview of, of what, what you designed in marriage, uh, what's your, your vision for one man, for one woman, to create this incredible companionship and out of which a safe place for children to be born and raised and thrived, and, and that all sexuality outside of that is ultimately destructive, whether we realize it at the time or not. And so, Lord, we just thank you for this practical teaching And I pray right now, Lord, over our congregation, those who are here, those who are watching online, I pray that by the power of your spirit, that if this is us, that we would not only be convicted of the damage, the danger, the sin, but we would also be deeply encouraged that there's hope, that in Christ, All things are possible. Through the power of your spirit, we can be cleansed. We can be washed. And even if our story is like a story like Phil's, that you can wash us, you can cleanse us. We can regain that purity through you, through a life of self-discipline, empowered by the spirit to rise with you to live this new life you've created us to live. So we thank you for that, Lord. We pray as we sing this song of beautiful surrender. We pray that for many of us, whether we're in a marriage and we've, we've not been pursuing a strong sexual relationship and we've been defending that for whatever reason, whether we're single, we've not been guarding our body or mind, whether married, not guiding our mind, that, that if that's our story, that we pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would bring your beautiful work of conviction. You'd be heavy on us because of your deep love for us. And that we would really bow the knee to you and surrender. And then listen and follow what the next step we need to take to find freedom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.